Chapter Fourteen of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Chapter Fourteen The Day Before. On 29th October, the time being ripe, and our preparations complete, we put to sea with a fleet consisting of HMSS Rattlesnake, Niger, Hornet, Dasher, Speedy, five torpedo-boats, and the colliers Elizabeth E. Greenwood, Lily, Blanche, and Emerald Lass, which last two we had managed to pick up during our stay at Lamlash. There should have been many more vessels, but, alas, they had gone to join the great majority since that meeting in the Vernon. The Aelta we left behind. She was too cumbersome to be of use with us. Blake sent the Lily over to Glasgow as we left, with instructions to let it be discovered that a British cruiser was or had been hiding at Lamlash. The report soon found its way to the enemy, and later Lieutenant Orchardston, who was left behind with a torpedo-boat to defend our base, managed to blow up a hostile vessel that crossed our minefield with a view to reconnoitering the harbour. The Lily having rejoined, our flotilla made for Loose Bay, which was reached in the early morning without anything hostile being sighted. Spending the day here, as soon as it was dusk we set off again over a practically deserted sea. Once we met a fishing smack who, taking us to be an enemy, crowded on all sail and tried to escape. A torpedo-boat, overhauling him, learned from a terrified fisherman that an immense Russian ship was lying somewhere in Milford Haven. This was, though we did not know it then, none other than the celebrated Rurik. Anxious as he was not to knowingly leave an enemy in our wake, our commodore hesitated to risk his torpedo-boats in an attempt to destroy the warship, and he would probably have let her alone but for the project unfolded by Borset Sr. This was nothing less than to get into the water with a torpedo, swim to near the Russian, and then let the weapon go on its errand of destruction. Since leaving this vessel behind might involve us in unforeseen difficulties, Blake at last consented to the arrangement, and number 54 went off towards Dale Road, getting into Jack's Sound without betraying her presence to anyone. When night fell, Borset's boat steamed cautiously to the mouth of the haven, and there lowered her dinghy. Fortunately the water was smooth, and the night dark and foggy, while the British fleet being presumably non-existent, the Russians were not likely to be expecting any attack. Nevertheless, they had boats out patrolling round the ship, which made it impossible for the dinghy to get anywhere near her. However, as but for these boats the Borsets might have hunted in vain for their quarry in the darkness, the circumstance was on the whole a favourable one. The cruiser was lying close in shore by St. Anne's Head and the boats covered a semicircle some two thousand yards to seaward of her, the land-side being left quite unguarded. The dinghy, which contained the two borsets and a blue-jacket, 
rode back to number fifty-four, and, after a consultation there, in towards the seashore, where after a while they found a landing-place, and here, by superhuman efforts, the three of them got the torpedo up over the cliffs and down again into Dale Flats. The first streak of dawn was already in the sky, when Mr. Borset, with a life-buoy around him, entered the water with the torpedo. The tide carried him out to where the Rurik was lying, some half-mile from his starting-point, and he had covered more than half the distance when a Russian with sharper eyes than his fellows noticed him, and fired a rifle. The shot was followed by a volley, but a man in the water is a poor target at the best of times, and Mr. Borset was able to push the torpedo ahead of him, set the motive power to work, and let her go. And a minute later the career of the Rurik was ended for many weeks to come. The gallant civilian was nearly dead from cold and exposure, and would have been drowned if his son in the blue jacket had not swum out to him. As it was, he had to be left in a cottage ashore. Borset's boat joined us soon after sunrise, with news of the successful enterprise, a long and interesting account of which appears in A Civilian's Reminiscences of the War, by John Borset, wherein the author modestly states that he got the idea from a similar episode that occurred in the manoeuvres several years before. Just before sunrise, when off the Sillies, we made out a cruiser bearing down upon us, and failure seemed to again threaten our enterprise, for though our warships could give her the heels, the colliers were only too likely to fall a prey, so there was nothing for it but to fight it out. Our torpedo-boats were skulking behind the colliers, and the enemy apparently took the whole lot of us for merchantmen, all of us being disguised. It was getting dark before she came within range of our aftermost collier, we had straggled out in apparent flight. The emerald last stopped directly the cruiser fired, and the boats, coming suddenly out, torpedoed the vessel before she had got over her surprise, and, two torpedoes striking her, she sank almost immediately. Blake steamed back to the spot, and found a few French sailors in one of their boats. As these, were they picked up by their friends, would have given information about us, we tried to take them prisoners, but they made a desperate and gallant resistance before they were overcome and taken on board one of the colliers. This task accomplished, we put into Penzance, and great was the terror our arrival created in the morning, for we flew the Russian flag. Lying inshore all day, and getting provisions and water, which we took without asking, for the people had all fled from the town, we left as night came on, and daybreak next morning found us inside Exmouth Bar, where a couple of ancient forts had been reduced to ruins by a hostile cruiser a few days before. It was a thick, heavy night coming round, and we saw nothing of the ironclads supposed to be beleaguering Plymouth, beyond a stray ship that nearly ran down number 45, and got torpedoed in return. The Solent was our objective— and Blake did not wish to risk an alarm reaching there for the sake of destroying a few ships off Plymouth that could very well wait till we came back again. At Exmouth, where we still posed as Russians, Blake and many others of us went ashore, to get such newspapers as were obtainable. 
as an english-speaking russian our commodore interviewed some of the principal residents under a flag of truce and getting hold of one who appeared to be trustworthy revealed his true identity to him the latter who was taken completely by surprise on his part told blake that he had sent a messenger to limpstone the nearest telegraph office with instructions to wire to Exeter for troops that must already be on their way. This was an awkward contretemps. We did not wish to shoot down our own countrymen, but, on the other hand, if they once got to hear that we were an English force, the news might reach the enemy, and our great attack prove a failure. Finally, Blake decided to stay where we were under the flag of truce, and when the military arrived— a company of the Devonshire Regiment Militia, and a half-battalion of volunteers, they seemed disposed to go for our small force right away, and were with difficulty restrained. Of course, when Blake explained matters in confidence to Colonel Top Higgins, the officer in command, the latter withdrew his troops, who were given to understand that an armistice was arranged till the evening and they spent the rest of the day in putting up entrenchments on the hill around the church. I do not know how it was that none of them recognized our uniforms, unless it was that all naval uniforms are very similar to each other, and they could hardly be expected to be familiar with the details of the Russian one. Anyway, everybody seemed satisfied as to our foreign origin, and we were congratulating ourselves on a day in harbour without further trouble— when an incident occurred that nearly wrecked all our plans. The residents, on learning that no fighting was likely to take place for several hours, got over their first terror, and soon we were surrounded by quite a crowd of people, curious to behold the dreaded foe. We, I should explain, were on the beach. The townsfolk promenaded on the sea-wall to gaze at us, and it was while idly watching the procession that my eye lighted on a figure that seemed familiar to me, a lady dressed in deep mourning. She, or the people she was with, had just stopped to look at the supposed Russians when she came almost face to face with Blake. For a moment they faced each other in silent astonishment, then, with a cry, "'Edward, my darling, my love, you are not dead after all!' She rushed down the steps, and Blake held her in his arms. He would have been more than human to have been able to keep up the Russian disguise, and a moment later we were known to be English. Cheers rent the air, an enthusiastic crowd fell about us. We were welcomed as the saviors of a nation. The news spread like wildfire. Our carefully kept secret was ours no longer. It was the property of a thousand tongues." Then it was that Garin of the Hornet saved us. Realizing that, unless immediate measures were taken, the news would soon spread beyond the limits of Exmouth, he hastened to the soldiers and persuaded the colonel to form a cordon round the town. Recognized the importance of this precaution, that officer at once posted his men, with instructions to shoot any one attempting to force a passage through. Nor was he a moment too soon, for several people were captured, some of them after a lengthy chase, who had started for the nearest telegraph office to flash the good news about the country. Blake and Miss Monckton had disappeared, nor did he rejoin us until it was time to be getting back to the ships. 
she and her father came down to the boat to see Blake off, and I could not help overhearing their farewell words. Miss Monckton, I noticed, had already discarded her mourning, and was now dressed in something light. "'You are quite sure you forgive me, dear?' I heard her saying, "'for all I have made you suffer. And now, no longer do we meet than we must part again, and God only knows if I shall ever see you more.' I hear this awful war is nearly over. Oh, why need you go? Why cannot you stay here? My darling, he made answer, it is because peace is so near that I must go. My duty to my country calls me, and you would not have me go against that. What we shall do to-night will, please God, alter the whole course of the campaign." and if it be fated that I see you no more, yet will you be happier for this meeting than had it not come about. And giving her one long farewell kiss, he leaped into the boat, and we rowed back to the rattlesnake. "'Come back! Come back!' she cried to him in anguish. But fate was inexorable, and no return was possible. Vainly she stood in the crimson glow, land and sea around her died to colours of fire and blood as she stretched out white arms towards her lover till the red haze hid him from her eyes it was a wild and stormy sunset such as one as turner used to paint at this very place a fitting accompaniment to the scene and a fitting portent to the bloody sequel now so close at hand none of us as we saw the sun sink behind the hills could expect, or even hope, to see him rise again. End of chapter.